Hey, it's Sarah. Don't forget to check out the Mina Kimes Show featuring Lenny. Every week, Mina, a guest, and Lenny, her dog, discuss the top stories in the NFL and provide valuable insights ahead of the weekend slate. Check out the Mina Kimes Show featuring Lenny wherever you get your podcasts. ESPN's Debatable is a digital exclusive series across the network's Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube channels, and the ESPN app, and it's now available as a podcast. The innovative series is led by a rotating team of signature voices, many of whom you're familiar with on ESPN podcasts, including me. We take on the most compelling topics from around the sports world. Check out Debatable now wherever you listen to your podcasts. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. Hi, I'm Lindsay Vaughn, and my dilemma is that I don't spend enough time with my doggies. Oh, man. Well, this is the ultimate dilemma, because here's the thing. So I have three dogs just like you, and they are truly my best friends. I, I mean, I was a dog and I was an animal lover before, you know, I, I got my, my first adult uh, rescue pup. Um, like my whole life, I loved animals. But Fletch, our first pup, uh, just turned my husband and I into Looney Tunes when it comes to rescue dogs. And our dogs were just obsessed with our with our boys. Um, they have their own Instagram. They sleep in bed with us. They have clothes. They're spoiled as shit. So anyway, the point is that I'm I'm always sort of torn on traveling and living life and then also spending as much time as I can with them because I know our time is limited. Um, and part of me understands that it's not smart to put off living and exploring, uh, but I also just can't stand the thought of them missing us um, and being sad while we're gone or me missing time that I can't get back when they're gone. Um, so long answer short, I can't help you. Um, I really can't. I haven't figured out the perfect mix myself, but maybe a listener has a perspective on this that, um, you know, has made them feel less guilt-ridden when they travel or figured out the perfect perspective. So uh, if you got one, share it. That's what she said. Hey, everybody. Uh, wanted to check in and tell you I'm loving the submission so far for the uh, do crew or get list crew. Uh, you know, name still TBD. Uh, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, you got to go back and listen to the January 4th episode, the last episode. It's called The Happiness Project. Learn about your assignment as listeners of this podcast. Um, I'll give you a quick hint. You got to think about the everyday habits and behaviors you want to change. Maybe those are resolutions you always make and can't keep. Think about how you're going to change them. And then um, also... Think about the thing you've really been putting off doing but want to do, something pleasurable, a place you want to go, a race you want to run, an instrument or a skill you want to learn. And then shoot me an email, sarah.c.spain at ESPN.com, and tell me about it because I'm going to start gathering some folks for this uh, this crew. So uh, go listen, email me. There's going to be more on that uh, in next week's episode. It's going to be a great episode, chock full of stuff. So um, go make sure you check that one out before then. And... Don't forget to subscribe and follow That's What She Said on Apple, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're at the iTunes or podcast app, rate and review. Five stars, please. Leave me a nice review like a hoop dude who wrote, love this podcast. I'm a sports nut, so most of mine are relative to sports, and this is why I initially started listening to this one. But there is so much more. Most recently, her chat with Chef Edward Lee. Now, that was fun. 
What's obvious is that Sarah does her research. She makes connections with her pod guests. Not only is she a great listener, she asks great questions. Still waiting for Brandy Carlisle as a guest, though, or Pete Souza. Cheers and happy new year. I'm working on Brandy. I have been. I will continue to. Pete Souza is an interesting one, too, former White House photographer. I'll look into that. Thank you, Hoop Dude. Appreciate it. Okay, let's get to this week and my superstar guest of the week, Lindsay Vaughn, the best female skier of all time. She boasts 82 World Cup wins, four overall World Cup titles, three Olympic medals, eight World Championship medals. She retired in 2019 as the most decorated American skier of all time. And over the course of her career, she really did blaze a trail for other female athletes across all sports and specifically elevated the sport of skiing. She's the founder of the Lindsay Vaughn Foundation, which works to empower young girls. She now lives in Utah. She has a new memoir, Rise, My Story. Uh, So this is not the book. If you are all into the salacious gossip about her relationships with other athletes, you know, like uh, Tiger Woods, P.K. Subban, etc. There is no mention of either, in fact. Um, So if you're into that, this might not be for you. But it does detail how she became great, the incredible pain required to be great, and the mental toll of, of trying to stay on top. One of my favorite excerpts from the book uh, kind of reveals the Lindsay Vaughn that we all watch, the, the, the idea that we got from seeing her ski, this fearless, take-no-prisoners, go-big-or-go-home approach, um, or as she describes it in the book, balls. Quote, I ended up winning both my races that weekend, the downhill and the combined. That final section was pivotal for me. The stretch from hell to the finish line is where I won the race. In fact, I absolutely crushed the downhill, winning by a huge margin of nearly a second and a half. After I won, I was at a press conference sitting next to Robert Trenkwalder, who ran the Athletes Special Projects program at Red Bull, whom I'd partnered with at age 19 and would go on to become one of my longest standing and most significant sponsors. A reporter asked me in German how I won the race. What's the key to your success? He asked. Everyone else is having a hard time. I leaned over to Robert and said, how do you say balls in German? What do you mean, he asked. I was like, you know, and made a gesture in the general direction of his crotch. He started to laugh, uh, ear, he said, which is literally translated as eggs. I turned back to the press and said, in German, you have to have big balls. The whole room erupted in laughter. No, really, the reporter said. No, really, I replied. That's my answer. After that, it became a thing. People would ask me, where are your balls, Lindsay? How are your balls? But honestly, that's what downhill is, having balls. At its core, downhill is about who is willing to throw themselves down the mountain the fastest. I have my foot on the gas pedal until I'm crashing into the fence. And that is why I crash into the fence. She also, in the book, writes about things like celebrating a World Cup championship win in front of a bunch of press and accidentally cutting her tendon in her thumb on the champagne bottle, having to get flown to emergency surgery, writes about stuffing a bathing suit with tissues to try to keep up with fellow skier Julia Mancuso, who she saw as sort of a confident, big-boobed woman who was a hit with the boys. Um, She also talks about uh, body image, depression, pursuing her dreams, sexism, the tears with coming to terms with retiring, uh, lots of stuff. So uh, throughout the interview with her, I kind of pop in with some extras from the book. And I think you guys are are really going to enjoy this. Here's my interview with the legend, Lindsay Vaughn. That's what she said. I've talked to Lindsay Vaughn a handful of different times on my radio show or in small chunks. I'm excited to have like a full long time to chat with you and get to know you. Um, and reading your book certainly has helped me get behind, uh, you know, the sort of superficial stuff, the usual stuff to some of, you know, what made you who you were and, and helped you find such incredible success. And I want to go back to that um you know, the childhood of being on skis at a young age and really at a young age, figuring out what your purpose was. You said you knew your purpose at nine. 
which is pretty unbelievable for the rest of us to imagine. We may have dreamed of doing something, but you actually had a plan and it was one that took up pretty much all of your life until the last couple of years. So uh, tell me about what kind of kid you were and why you think it, it, it may have worked out that you tried something, liked it, and then immediately were like, well, I guess is this what I'm going to do? Um, well, I've definitely been driven my whole life and, you know, kind of one that uh, I'm very stubborn. So, you know, I like I'm motivated by people saying that I can't do things. But so when I started skiing, I wasn't very fast. And my coach actually made fun of me and said I was a turtle. Um, and I stuck to skiing because I really enjoyed it. And I tried a lot of other sports like soccer and gymnastics and figure skating, all of which I was absolutely terrible at. Um, but when I met Pigaboo Street when I was nine, that's when I said, you know, ski racing is what I want to do. I want to be her. And I, you know, I always just enjoyed skiing before that. And I enjoyed racing, but I never thought of it as something I could do, you know, as a career. And so, you know, I went home to my dad and I was like, how do I, how do I be Peekaboo? You know, how do we make it to the next Olympics? And so we, he didn't bat an eye. He said, this is going to be hard work. And I was like, let's go, let's do it. And he made like a 10 year plan and we stuck to it. And I, I made the Olympics at 17. So, um, I don't know. I just, I always knew from that moment that that's what I was meant to do. And I mean, my mom is like crazy stories of me, like signing, in elementary school, like <laughs> practicing my signature and like weird things, like I'm going to be the greatest gear. Who would have thought that that would actually come true? I also signed autographs from a young age on. I was like, ah, something's going to happen. I'm going to need to, I'm going to need to make sure I've got something's this. Gonna I know. I'm gonna something's going to happen. I'm not sure what, but I'm going to need this. Um, you said you've always been motivated by people not having a belief in you. Here's an excerpt from the book Rise on Lindsay using negativity to fuel her. Quote, to take negativity from others and use it to make myself better became vital to the success that I'd have later on. Or put another way, if you don't want me to win, then you probably shouldn't push my buttons. If somebody told me I couldn't do slalom, my mind immediately said, F you, I'm going to do slalom. If someone said I was too skinny to succeed at downhill, F you, I'm going to do downhill. Eventually got to the point where I could dial it up nearly on command. Later in my career, the Slovenian Tina Mays made a negative comment about me before a race. She had won the race before, and she said something to a reporter about how she didn't think I could do it. I skied purely to prove her wrong. At the finish, I said, in your f***ing face, Tina, which I fully admit I definitely should not have said. It was very was a very sportsmanlike. But what can I say? I get very triggered when people talk shit. Listen, like you said, you tried other sports and you they weren't your best. So obviously you were OK with accepting it if you weren't the best or you were OK with someone telling you that. Why do you think, um, you know, and I say that to say that, you know, someone calling you a turtle as a joke probably wasn't, you know, a trigger for you with skiing. Um, you loved skiing. You, you knew you could do it well. Um, why do you think that, that some part of you found motivation in doubters or, or did you feel like you were doubted in, in other ways and that carried over to sport? Uh, I think I was mainly just doubted in skiing, at least, you know, in the beginning of my life. And I don't know, I always, I, I didn't, you know, I wasn't um, down about people saying that I couldn't do things because I knew if I worked hard enough, I could, I could turn it around and I could prove them wrong. And that's one thing that I really enjoy is like the challenge of a goal, you know? Um, and so sometimes people saying negative things about me, you know, that set a new goal for me and that, you know, just continuously motivated me through my career. Um, well, I think when it comes to people saying negative things about me personally, I think that's a totally different thing. And 
that sometimes can have an effect on me. I, I mean, I think I've developed pretty thick skin <laughs> to this point. Um, but in the beginning, it definitely was a lot harder. Whereas, you know, anyone can say anything about me in skiing and I will absolutely prove you wrong. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. In the book, Lindsay talks about making a training plan with her dad. Here's a little bit of that excerpt. Together, we sat down and created a 10-year plan leading up to the Olympics and beyond. We didn't have the internet back then, so we looked through ski racing magazines to see which athletes were getting which points by what age. From there, we worked backward from the date of the Olympics to set benchmarks for me to hit along the way. The whole thing was super thorough and quite detailed. What did your parents do for a living? Because even though many parents are supportive, I don't know that all of them would say, okay, well, if you like skiing, let's make a 10-year plan and make this happen. Um, you know, what, what, what were they doing uh, for work when you were growing up and just learning? Um, my parents were both lawyers. Um, my dad was a ski racer and um, he blew his knee out when he was 18. So that ended his career. Um, and then he was coaching uh, at night and going to law school in the day. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, skiing has always been his passion. And so I think that's kind of how I got my start is because my dad had a passion for it. But my mom had a stroke when she had me. And so, you know, she wasn't working for a long time. And then she had four kids after that, three of which were triplets. Um, I don't know how my mom did it. She's a mm-hmm. warrior. Um, but, you know, it wasn't even though both of them had great jobs, it still was a huge sacrifice for us um, because obviously we had five kids and my mom wasn't really working that much anymore. Um, but my dad, you know, saw something in me and he saw that I was willing to sacrifice, you know, whatever it took to make it. And, and so I was lucky enough that, you know, my parents and my siblings all supported me in that, in that goal. So it's kind of a weird question, but when I look back at my life, I split it up in, in, I think, a pretty standard way. Like there's junior high, high school, college, and then I lived in, in L.A. for six years and then back to Chicago. So and then, you know, married. Uh, it's, it's just, you know, very generic. But so much of your life centered around skiing and you and you forewent so many things that the average kid um, marks their life with, whether that's, you know, social things or, you know, balance that, that isn't really able to be kept when you, when you're really pursuing greatness, the way that you were, how do you split up your life when you look back? Is it by before Olympics, this Olympics, next Olympics? What, how did you do it? Um, I kind of, I don't know. I view it as maybe there's three parts. Maybe there's skiing before my first major surgery, skiing after my major surgery, and then, you know, retirement in the next chapter. Um, I think, you know, once I started to have major surgeries, it kind of changed. Um, A lot of things changed, you know, how I approached skiing and how I had to be more tactical. And um, it just was kind of a, it was a very difficult uh, series of events because like, you know, I was injured pretty much every year um, from then until I retired. And, and so I was constantly trying to fight back just to get to where I was before, not even 
let alone like improve where I was. So, um, but you know, I think each chapter taught me something different. And, and of course, every lesson was important and every injury was really important. So I wouldn't be, you know, where I am without all of those things happening. Lindsay also wrote about her family moving to facilitate her career. Quote, it was a dramatic moment in the life of our family. This wasn't what I had in mind when I said I wanted to get to the Olympics. It seemed such a harsh punishment for everyone in service to my goal. We loved that house. We grew up in that house. And suddenly, without a goodbye, it was gone. It was also rough having all these plans decided for you, especially the younger kids who didn't quite grasp that my overarching goal had turned into the families. When we all cried out, I looked up and saw that my mother had been crying right along with us. At first, all seven of us lived in a three-bedroom condo. The kitchen setup was more like a vacation rental than a home, with a mini fridge and a two-burner stove. We would take turns sharing the beds. I shared a bedroom with Karen and Laura that only fit two beds, and we would draw straws to see who got to sleep solo. It worked for a while, and the next year we found a slightly bigger apartment. Two years after that, we got a townhouse where we stayed for the next few years. Your whole family moved to Vail from Minnesota for you. It was sort of a necessity to be in Colorado and to be in Vail to really train in a way that would help you succeed. That's a ton of pressure. It's a ton of pressure when you're a kid and you're great at something and people facilitate that both financially and with their time. But then you've got four younger siblings who are uprooted and brought to a brand new place. Did you internalize that at the time or do you only look back and think like, whoa, that's a big deal? Yeah. I I mean, it was definitely hard. I mean, I I was 12 and you know, knowing that my family was sacrificing so much for me to, you know, to get to where I wanted to go um, was a lot of pressure. And I don't think I fully understood the magnitude of it at the time, but I knew, you know, that made it really easy for me to make certain sacrifices. You know, I think that gave me a certain perspective. Um, I didn't take it for granted. I didn't take any opportunity for granted. I knew Um, you know, that I needed to do this for my family as much as I wanted to do it for myself. So when there was parties or, you know, when there was um, other things that I could have been doing, I I always said no, because, you know, I was focused solely on, on making it to the Olympics and, and, um, you know, making that sacrifice worth it. But I'm, I mean, I look at a 12 year old now and I'm like, how did a 12 year old me, you know, handle that? I don't, I don't know how I did it, but right. um, it seemed natural at the time, I guess. You kind of deal with the hand that you're, you're given, I guess. Yeah, because your parents talked about it on their own and made the decision and then sat you all down and told you after you had spent a couple years going back and forth with your mom. Um, did they talk about it much or even in a moment of weakness or anger for them, did they say, you know, we moved here for you, or even in, in a in a positive way, oh, you know, we're putting all this behind you because we believe in you. Um, because I think that makes a big difference in how much you're really able to understand the sacrifice versus as a kid. I think we all don't really think about till later, like, holy shit, our parents are driving us to every activity and paying for every activity. You don't, until you're an adult and you, and you treasure your time, you don't realize it. Uh, did they talk about it openly like that? Um, yes and no. I mean, I, I, I don't have a lot of memories of anyone saying things one way or the other, because I always knew that they believed in me and, you know, we wouldn't be there if, if they didn't. But, you know, I do remember times when, you know, if I ever was a normal teenager and I was getting a little feisty, you know, I, I was definitely put in my place and, and, you know, and, and that's to be expected. But I, I, again, I think I generally 
always made the the right decision because I knew that I was doing it for my family. You know, my siblings didn't definitely didn't ask to move, you know, from their lives in Minnesota and their friends to be, you know, in a new school with, you know, struggling with, with finding new friends and things like that. And, and so having that perspective, I think, yeah, it was all I really needed to keep me in line. Here's Lindsay in the book on her first trip to the Olympics. Eight years after getting her autograph, I ended up on the 2002 U.S. Olympic ski team with Peekaboo Street. I wish I could say that when I made it to my first Olympics, it was just like I had always imagined. I wish I could tell you I felt a tremendous sense of accomplishment at my biggest dream coming true, that I could stand back and appreciate how it felt to finally meet my goal. In some ways, that was the case. But as it often is, the reality was more complicated, both better and worse than I imagined. You... Write about how the Olympics were not the dream perfect scenario that you had thought all of growing up, this ideal of what the experience would be. How did it not meet your expectations the first time? No, I mean, the first time it definitely exceeded my expectations. I was so thrilled to be there. Um, the crowds were amazing. It was a really interesting time, though, because it was right after 9-11 and security was was crazy. And um, But I felt this crazy electricity as well you know that there was so much unity with our country and you know being at the opening ceremonies gave me chills and and still to this day does I think it was more you know the after effect of of the Olympics that I was disappointed with because I had you know a sixth place finish in the combined which was actually the best result of any women on the entire Olympics um, from our team. And, you know, because no one else meddled, they considered it a disappointment. So I was kind of swept under the rug and kind of back to square one. And I felt like I didn't really make any progress forward, which is shocking, you know, considering I just made my first Olympic team at 17. Right. So um, I think it was just, you know, more the outcome than the experience. You write about um, the kind of skier you were both as an individual, but within the team concept and how it took you a while to realize that competitiveness was okay, but not necessarily required in the off time with your teammates, that there was a way to be a better teammate and to make friends differently. Um, because you had a, a gap of about five years or so where some of your original teammates were gone and you felt sort of alone uh, on the U.S. team from the book. Quote, even with all the interpersonal stuff back then, I enjoyed traveling together because it helped to mitigate being away from home for so long. During my early years, I adored the other girls on the team. Jonna Mendez, Caroline Lalive, Kristen Clark. All those girls were great to me. It felt like I had a second family during all those months on the road. But when they retired, I didn't find another friend group for years. From about age 20 to 25, it would be fair to say I didn't have any friends on the ski team. Looking back now, that was definitely my fault. Because of my competitive nature, I tended to see the other girls as rivals, which only further complicated any potential friendships. While I'm sure everyone recognized that rivalry, even between friends, was essential to such a charged atmosphere, it grew more complex for me since I wasn't that social to begin with. I often felt like I didn't belong, and at a certain point, trying didn't seem worth the effort. So instead, I decided I'd rather just win, figuring I could forge my own path to acceptance by winning. But because I didn't let anyone get close to me, when I started to see success, not everyone was happy. What was like a pivot point? Or or is there a moment where you could say, this is where I sort of understood that I wanted to change my behaviors and the ways that I that I interacted with my teammates to make it a more fun experience? Well, you know, ski racing is a hard sport because, you know, we travel as a team, we have team meetings, you know, we, we train together, we ski together. 
But when we're in the starting gate, it's an individual sport, very much an individual sport. Um, and so I definitely struggled with that, um, you know, finding that team camaraderie in the beginning, because, you know, all, as you said, you know, all of the, the girls that I'd kind of grown up with that were older than me, they left. And so for a long time, I didn't really feel like I had a, a lot of connection with some of the girls. But, you know, I think a lot of times it's when I'm standing on the podium and I'm, I'm looking out and I'm, you know, I would say 99% of the time my teammates were there for me, but you know, if I'm looking out and they're not there, it's why are they not there? It's because I'm not a good teammate. And so, you know, obviously it's a growing experience. You live and you learn. And, and, um, I found in the end that the more I worked with my team, the better we all did. And, and the more, um, the victories were so much sweeter because I, I had all of these amazing people there with me and we were doing it together, even though, you know, it's an individual sport. And I, I, I felt like some of the best moments were when I was on the podium with, um, with my own teammates that those were incredible moments. It is funny. Cause it, it reminds me again of that timeline of your life. Like so many of us can think like, Oh man, back in junior high, I was this. And then in high school, I figured it out. And then in college, I became this person. Then after college, you're with a lot of the same people and in a lot of the same places for all of these moments of your life. And you're such a different person. And that evolution and growth is so needed and expected, but it's really much harder to do if, the places that you're in and the people that you're around aren't always changing with you. Um, yeah. You know, the, the, the teammates and the coaches and stuff and, and sort of that through line of skiing. Um, it, it's interesting to think about trying to grow and evolve within some of that, um, you know, th those constrictions. I, I think too, you know, it's, I was so trying so hard to prove myself, you know, to, to make my spot on the team and to prove that I belong there that I think, you know, I, I, forgot about everyone else around me. And I think that's a natural and normal thing. But, you know, once I kind of got settled and I, I looked around, you know, that's when I kind of made that assessment. And, and um, you know, I wasn't trying to prove anything anymore, um, which again is like, it's an evolution of your life and you know, how you approach things and, you know, being not as insecure and mm. you know, being a teenager, I think those things all came into account. But I definitely lived and I learned and you know, very happy that I have such great relationships with all my teammates now. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's life in general. It just happens earlier when you're an athlete like that. I think especially women that I know, you know, it's, the twenties are all about who am I going to be and how am I going to make something of myself? And everyone's in competition with me because you're insecure. And then you, you get happy and settled and you figure yourself out and then it's less about you. And then you start looking around, how can I help other people? How can I make things better in the world? And that selfishness kind of goes away once you're settled. And that's Absolutely. a lot harder to do if every day is a competition, right? Yeah. You're, you're constantly being set up to compete. You wrote another book, uh, Strong is the New Beautiful, Embrace Your Natural Body, Eat Clean and Harness Your Power. So this isn't your first, obviously, but how is the process different? This feels like such a personal book. Yeah, this is totally different. I mean, my my first book, you know, is more about, um, you know, just fitness and health and embracing who you are and kind of the lessons that I learned in that realm. And this, you know, this book Rise is a memoir, you know, it's, it's about my life. And um, I think a lot of people know the adversities I faced on the mountain with my injuries and things like that. But, you know, a lot I didn't say and a lot I was dealing with in silence. And, you know, I internalized a lot of those things. And I, I, you know, 
I released it on the mountain, but I, you know, <laughs> I never told that story. So I think, you know, for me, this was uh, necessary and, and therapeutic in a lot of ways to, to really share. Um, but also, I, I really hope that, you know, I can inspire some people to overcome their own adversities, you know, and hopefully they can learn from my mistakes. We'll get right back to the interview. But first, what's your favorite word? Probably grit. Of course, that's your word. Nothing describes Lindsay Vaughn more than grit. So this is from the old English word grit, sand, dust, earth, or gravel, and then became a way of describing pluck, spirit, firmness of mind in American English in 1808. Grit. Good word. Speaking of great words. You're going to learn today. The word of the week is initialism. So... As an English major, as a lover of words, I was shocked to learn via a Twitter user of all things about such a thing as an initialism. So it's an abbreviation consisting of initial letters pronounced separately. Now that's opposed to an acronym, an abbreviation formed from the initial letters of other words and pronounced as a word. Did you know the difference? Because I did not. Are you kind of confused right now? Okay, so let's look at a couple examples. So acronyms would be NASA, National Aeronautical and Space Administration. FOMO, fear of missing out. Laser, light amplification by stimulated emission of radiation. Or radar, radio detection and ranging. So these are acronyms. They form new words. FOMO, laser, radar. Whereas in the case of initialisms, you pronounce the letters instead of turning them into a new word, i.e. VIP, DVD, ATM. We don't say VIP, DVD, Adam. So I've definitely been calling initialisms acronyms all along, uh, and I imagine many of you have too. In fact, some of the uh, work on this will tell you it's not a huge deal to mix them up. But technically, while both abbreviations... One is an initialism and one is an acronym. And it's pretty humbling to learn that this far into my life. But I do love learning your things. So I would rather learn the right way and learn what's what's correct than, than be deluding myself my whole life. But wow, I had no idea. I had no idea about initialisms. Okay, in a sentence. As someone who uses initialisms every day on my shows when talking about the WNBA, NFL, MLB, etc. It's a pretty big shock to learn they're not the exact same thing as the acronyms I talk about on my shows every day, like NASCAR or FIFA. Now let's get back to the interview. What's the part of the book that you're most either nervous or intrigued about how it will be received once the book is out there? Um, I mean, kind of the whole thing, to be honest. <laughs> Um, I mean, I feel really vulnerable in, in the sense that I really opened up about pretty much everything. Um, you know, my depression for one, which I've been talking openly about for many years, but, um, you know, I definitely went into detail and, and, um, you know, talked about my injuries and, and things like that. So I don't know. I, and also, you know, trying to compete against the men and, you know, how I perceive that and, and um, kind of the sexism that I that I dealt with a little bit on the tour. So I don't know. I, I, I'm interested to see what what people generally think. I'm nervous because again, I I'm totally open. You know, I expose myself in pretty much every way. So um, I thought it was important for me to do that, but um, it definitely is a vulnerability for sure. You mentioned the depression, and a lot of that kind of maybe manifested itself differently or in a way that was more noticeable to you after your parents told you they were getting divorced in 2002. 
you found that there was, you know, there was a relationship concurrently, the, the news from your parents, and even skiing sort of wasn't this refuge for you anymore. Here's Lindsay from the book on her depression. Quote, looking back, it seems obvious that my parents' divorce took a huge toll on everything that year. My skiing, my personal life, all of it was made more complicated by what was going on with my family. Even worse, though, was not knowing how to talk about it. I didn't talk to my family about it. I didn't talk to anyone. I felt stuck, like there was no way out and nothing would ever get better. I fell into a spiral of wondering, what's the point? Why try? I was in a dark hole and I started to isolate. At the time, I didn't have the emotional awareness or vocabulary to see these feelings for what they were, depression. Anyone who's experienced depression will know what I'm talking about. In a way, it's like you stop being yourself and turn into a person you don't recognize. You feel hopeless, kind of like you're falling deeper and deeper into a black pit and you're powerless to stop it. You fight hard to get out of it, but no matter how much you try, you can't move. When you're depressed, there is no why. Everything feels pointless. Why talk to anyone, I'd think, when no one wants to talk to me? Why bother? Why try? It feels like there's no way up and no way out. It reached a point where I stayed inside my bedroom all day. I didn't want to come out. I didn't want to socialize. It was almost like being trapped by some invisible force. My motivation plummeted and I lost interest in everything. I wasn't even into working out. In my rational brain, I knew exercise was important. But for the first time ever, I placed my training on the back burner because I didn't want to leave the house. Once that happened, I saw that there was a problem. Skiing had been the only rock in my life and now even that was faltering. This was the first time in my life where I didn't put my career first. And that was a red flag. How between maybe back then, which now feels like forever ago, 2002 and now, um, do you feel like you've gotten different tools or ways of understanding and dealing with it when something like that hits? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think mainly in my life, I use skiing as a crutch for a lot of things, mainly for emotional support. And, you know, skiing was really the only thing I could rely on for the majority of my life you know, nothing else was entirely stable. Um, and so, you know, now that I'm, you know, retired from skiing, I've definitely had to really look at myself in the mirror and, and, you know, do some of the hard work and therapy that I hadn't been doing before. You know, it's easy to sweep things under the rug when you're solely focused on, you know, one thing, but when that thing is gone, you know, you're, you're kind of left exposed. And, and so again, I, I think, you know, doing that hard work in therapy was really important for me. And it's allowed me to be in this place now where I'm incredibly happy and um, I'm comfortable with who I am in all ways. And I wasn't, you know, entirely comfortable um, with myself before. And, and now I, I know myself, I know my identity and there's nothing to do with skiing. I'm, I'm just me. One of the best things about getting older, and I used to think that people were lying when they'd be like, oh, it's better now. I'd be like, oh, you're just trying to make yourself feel better. And now I'm like, exactly. it's so much better now. It's so much better now. You don't give a shit. You're just like, here's who I am. And this is good. And then here's the things I want to work on. And, um, you know, social media was not nearly as prevalent back in 2002 and early on in your career. And so you've been a person in the spotlight and a person of great fame and success from well before social media was thing. And now into the thick of it. Um, and I wonder how you, from your perspective, view it both as a, as a benefit in terms of sponsorships and awareness and being able to show people who you are without that filter of, of the media. Um, and then maybe also how it even aggravates the, the pressures of, of trying to compete and be the best. 
Well, it's interesting because, you know, when I won the Olympics in 2010, that was really when Facebook was, was taking off um, a lot. And, and I think it was interesting because it, I did feel like it gave me a great platform and I could say what I wanted to say without having to, you know, give an interview and worry about, you know, if they took my words out of context or not. Um, and I still think it's a great, if it's a great way for people to express themselves. Um, but, you know, obviously as time went on and, you know, there became much more negativity associated with it. And I had to kind of evolve with it as it got bigger and Instagram came out and, you know, I think I had gained more and more success. It kind of snowballed into something much bigger and it was hard um, at first to kind of deal with because, you know, you read the comments and sometimes people say negative things about you and it, you know, really got under my skin because a lot of it was like personal attacks. You know, I'm, I'm totally fine with someone saying that I'm not good at skiing because I can totally prove them wrong. And my record mm-hmm. shows that. But um, when someone personally attacks me, I think that that's very difficult um, to kind of grasp. And I had to develop really thick skin. Um, but, you know, I think it helps a lot of athletes, especially those who don't have mainstream TV coverage. Um, you know, it's a, it's a great way again for, you know, athletes to express themselves for really anyone to express themselves. And of course, with anything, you can make it positive or negative. And I choose to always try to make it as positive as possible. I think that's something that female athletes have to consider far more than, than men's athletes. And it's something I talk to some of the best in each sport about pretty regularly, because there's the added pressure of not just being the best at what you do, but essentially selling the sport and selling the idea of women doing that sport, being a role model, not messing up. Um, you know, when there's, when there's a male athlete like LeBron James, who's been in the spotlight for so long, we sort of marvel at the idea that he's never really gotten in a, in a significant amount of trouble for anything, which is great and props to him. But with women, we're just assuming that that's the case. And if there's a misstep, it's blown completely. It's, it's huge. And even if that sport doesn't get a lot of coverage for the good stuff, people will zero in on that negative moment. And I wonder for you how it's felt because particularly in a sport that's not even particularly mainstream, except for those big events, the Olympics and the world championships and stuff, there is added pressure on you to represent yourself and who you are and your own success and then sell everybody on skiing um, and, and all of that. And how have you sort of internalized that even in ways where like maybe you sometimes wanted to act out just because you were sick of having to be perfect or, or maybe internalized, you know, things about yourself that, that you would have wanted to be open about, but you felt maybe didn't fit the, the narrative or the idea of what you want to present? Yeah. I mean, I've always felt like it's a great responsibility to be in the position that I am in. I mean, I, you know, meeting peekaboo street when I was nine is a great example of that. You know, I, you can really affect someone in a very positive way, but you can also affect them in a very negative way. So the weight of that is, is quite big. And a lot of people, you know, don't want to take on that responsibility. But, you know, for me, I really, I really felt it was a privilege to be in that position. And so I wanted to, you know, always try to be the best role model that I could be and and make the right decisions. But it was always easy for me because I, you know, I, it's not like I'm out partying, you know, like I never really, Mm -hmm. I never drank. I never did anything bad. I was always so focused on skiing in my career. Um, But there are definitely times when, you know, I felt like, my personality, um, 
it was hard. It was hard to really be exactly who I was because I was always getting criticized. Um, you know, I was always deemed dramatic or, you know, and even some of the other athletes would say that. And, you know, a lot of times it was be because I was having, I had so many injuries and it was just pretty hilarious to me that, you know, people would, would judge me for talking about my injuries, uh, in the media because, you know, I'm the last person that wants to talk about it because I don't want to be injured. Okay, let's pause for a second here to remember how often Vaughn was seriously injured throughout her career. Like the absurdity of feeling like she talked about it too much instead of the amazement that she kept fighting her way back to race again and again. So for instance, from the book, this is from Olympics 2006. Quote, on the second training run, I was leading halfway down the course, but right as I entered the second half, I ran into some trouble on a series of man-made rolls, which are undulations built into the terrain using mounds of snow or sometimes dirt to make a course more challenging. Rolls are smaller than jumps, and on their face, they aren't anything special, but they still add another exciting element to the course. There were three in a row, and when I went over one of them, my ski got light. As I landed, my uphill ski hooked up and went in the wrong direction. The next thing I knew, I was being forced into the splits. Both my knees touched the ground, going 80 miles per hour, and the force of it flipped me over. All this happened just before a 25-meter jump, which is a little over 80 feet. It wasn't the biggest jump by any means, which was fortunate, because I continued moving forward. I went off it facing backward. I hurtled through the air for a couple of seconds before landing flat on my back. I finally came to a full stop, my legs still in the splits, screaming the whole time. Immediately, I thought my back and hips were broken. The pain was excruciating. It's not likely that you go off a jump backward, land on your back, and do not break something major. Someone on the mountain popped off my skis, which were still attached to my boots. They shot me up with morphine while I was still on the hill, then placed me on a stretcher and helicoptered me to the hospital in Turin. This was only the second time I'd been airlifted off a mountain, and I was terrified it might also be the last. Or perhaps a training crash that she had in November of 2016. Quote, it took about an hour and a half to get to the hospital, quite possibly the longest 90 minutes of my life. When I arrived, they wheeled in a portable x-ray machine to see what was going on. The technician lifted my arm to place it on the machine and then dropped it. I've never felt such pain or screamed so loud in my life. At that point, I passed out. The next thing I remember is waking up after surgery. I asked the doctor what happened, how the procedure went, and tried to get all the details. He told me it was a spiral fracture of the humerus, which meant the bone that runs from the shoulder to the elbow was fractured all the way around. It had basically broken in three pieces, and because of the way it was twisted, the radial nerve popped out. What's more, they put a plate and 18 screws in my arm in order to fix it. If this sounds like the bad part, it's not. After he was done walking me through the procedure, I said, well, you must have put a nerve block in because I can't feel my hand. The doctor paused for a minute. No, we didn't put a nerve block in. Another pause. You can't feel your hand? That was the bad part. That moment was the most scared I've ever been. Your nerve was exposed, the doctor continued, and it was definitely damaged. At this point, I can't tell you when or if it will come back or what's going to happen to it. Those kinds of things really affected me. And I also, you know, I swear sometimes and, you know, (laughs) one time I got to the finish and I, you know, I swore. And then, you know, one of the athletes, she tried to disqualify me because she said I was talking about her. And it was like, you know, those types of things are just insanely ridiculous. And, you know, I tried, I mean, obviously I didn't get disqualified, but, um, Can you get disqualified for talking shit about someone at the end of your own race? Like that feels, uh, I mean, I, like a reach. First of all, I didn't, but I, I just said, 
like I talk about it in my in my book, but it was like, you know, in your face or something like that. I don't yeah. know what he said, but it was, you know, it's like just a typical thing, which I mean, look at John McEnroe, like that one sentence isn't even remotely close to what John right. said his entire career. But, you know, I people were trying to disqualify me from the race and I'm, you know, this dramatic person, um, which, you know, it's just a double standard and look at Serena. It's another example. Yeah, it happens know, all the time. So much. And, you know, if you compare it to a lot of other men, it's really not even comparable. So I don't know. I think that's kind of a typical thing that women experience in sports, but um, you know, I always just try to stay authentic to myself as much as I could. And, you know, if I was ever unsure if, if that was the right move, you know, from a role model perspective, I always just kept my mouth shut because I felt like, you know, there's so many kids watching that that's the most important thing. You know, I, I don't need to make a statement. I just need to be a good person. Right in the book about people asking you why you were wearing makeup for uh, races. And you said, you know, you wanted to embrace your femininity and, and be able to have an effect on the parts of you that weren't chosen by the uniform or, or the, 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 sort of clothing that was designed for the sport that you still had your hair and your makeup and everything like that. And that's obviously a, a part of your brand too. And there's an incredible amount of power in embracing your brand, whether that's, you know, feminine and beautiful or edgy and, and quirky or whatever it is. Um, and I think in women's sports, especially it, well, in women in everything, not just sports, um, being sexualized and, and, being taken advantage of for that is far different than when you have power or control to decide for yourself that you are empowered in the way that you present yourself instead of somebody else choosing how you will be presented or how they will see you. Um, but there's a really fine line in that. And especially in the, the time that you started to become really successful when it was, everything was Maxim and, you know, us magazine and all these things that's, that sort of has changed a bit. But during that time, did you feel like you could comfortably present yourself and that you were always in control of that? Or were there times where you felt like your look and your brand was sort of um, manipulated and you just had to kind of go with it because it felt like it was the right move for your career? No, I always felt like I was in control and I was always authentically me. And, you know, was I disappointed sometimes that people, you know, judge me or criticize me for things that I did or said or wore? Yeah, of course. Um, but that's kind of part of the game. And, you know, I wore makeup because it made me feel good because I can't control really anything that I wear <laughs> in ski <laughs> racing. And so it was like the one thing that made me feel more feminine. And if people want to say that I'm, you know, trying to be more sexy or whatever, like that's on them. That's not on me. Um, you know, I, I stuck to what I believed in. I, I wanted to do what made me feel better. Um, and, you know, again, there's always going to be people that judge you. Um, and I've developed thick enough skin so that I could take it. But, you know, my brand is me. My brand is me as a person, me as a ski racer, me as a successful athlete. Um, and, you know, I don't let people who try to objectify me get under my skin because again, that's, that's their problem, not mine. It's really hard to be normal 
when everybody's watching you, when everybody's weighing in and commenting. So all of the things that the rest of us can do and me for the most part, to a certain extent, I do have some of that same commentary following everything I do, but um, you know, the things that feel normal and authentic to you and your friends and family can be misread by other people. They don't have the context of who you are, or they've just decided to fill in what they don't know with a story that's not right. And then that informs what, what they say about you. And I, I think about, for example, and I remember this at the time, you had a new relationship at the time with Tiger Woods and the announcement was just like photo shoot plus like a, a social media message about the fact that you were dating. Are there moments in your life that you think to yourself, what is this? Like I, I have a new relationship and instead of just getting to like start going out to dinner and tell my friends I'm dating someone, I have to, I have to be wary of how it's received and who's asking about it and make a full presentation and announce it. Um, that's just foreign to, to most people. Yeah, it's difficult, you know, when your life is on display to so many and, you know, nothing is private. It's, you know, it's part of the game, you know, it, it is, it's part of the, you know, you're an athlete, you're in that position, you're in the spotlight. I understand that. And I've never, you know, I've never said that I don't, you know, I re resent it. Um, cause for the good or bad, you know, you, as an athlete, you need it, you know, that's the reality, you know, everyone can say they hate it, but at the same time, like, you know, if it weren't for Billie Jean King, uh, you know, women's tennis wouldn't be where it is, you know, I mean, they need media and, and you can't stop giving interviews. You know, that's just, that's not how it works. And so for me, I take the good with the bad and I try to control it as much as I can. You know, it, it's weird that, and it's interesting because, you know, you think about all my friends, you know, how many people they dated in their lives. And I really haven't mm -hmm. dated anyone, <laughs> <laughs> but because I'm in the spotlight, everyone thinks that I've dated all these people or, you know, that my personal life is somehow relevant, but it's, it's really not. And, and so if I choose to share it, then that's, that's my, that's, you know, my choice. And I don't want anyone to take that away from me. So yeah, is it weird that, you know, I feel like I have to post something in order to make sure that paparazzi don't, you know, get a story first? Yeah. But I mean, again, that's part of, the deal. So, right. um, you know, I just deal with it as best I can. And, and, um, I just take the hand that I'm dealt. I mean, at least announcing it's the fun part. It's the breaking up. Then you have to make an announcement for that. That sucks. Cause the announcing is very exciting. And then when you have to tell everybody, instead of just sitting on your couch with your ice cream, you have to make some sort of public statement. Um, I, I always, I always think that that's the worst part of everybody wanting to be a part of the relationships that you're in. Once you've, once you've made, you know, a name for yourself. Vaughn writes about breakups in the book, quote, for a long time, the only thing scarier than solitude was the thought of breaking up. Breakups are one of the most excruciating experiences. I would honestly rather have knee surgery than have my heart broken. Although in my case, I've had my fair share of both. That overwhelming sense of disappointment, coupled with the loss you feel at the end of the relationship, that to me is harder than any crash or injury. But there can also be silver linings. For me, the period following a breakup is a time of self-reflection, of reinvention, of defining who I am and how I want my life to be. Though this, too, was something I learned after a fair amount of time in therapy. If skiing taught me anything, it's that nothing good in life comes easy. It would take a number of years and a lot of work before I could feel comfortable on my own, able to see my own value and set healthy boundaries. Until then, there were plenty of empty hotel rooms awaiting me, plenty of long nights spent avoiding my inner monologue.
I also think a fascinating thing about being a trailblazer in the way that you are is that you create for the people that come after you a, a roadmap that wasn't there necessarily for you. And of course, there were successful skiers before you, but you really changed the game. And I'm thinking about someone like Michaela, who um, looks to have this incredible success ahead of her and sort of it's sort of like Steph Curry right like he changed the way people play basketball so eventually if someone breaks his record it's because he taught them here's how you do it you you know and and, and I wonder if there's a part of you that is both proud of putting your sport on the map in a way that it never had been before and of of making it multidimensional in a way that it hadn't been before but also looks back and says like man these these people coming after me they got it so easy I, you know i i, I kind of uh, made the path for them i mean there's definitely an, a little bit of an element of both i think i'm mainly extremely proud you know i mean peekaboo was the person that i looked to when i when i was growing up and you know she was the first person to have like a major headgear sponsor she had a shoe named after her you know she had a commercial you know things that no skier had ever done before you know she was on rolex ads and you know for me that's what i looked to and then and then i tried to you know increase that and i you know i think that's our responsibility is to keep trying to raise the bar for the next generation and you know yeah, I people now have it so much easier than than I did, but but that's what I'm proud of, you know. It's easier because I did what I did and so, you know, I can take solace in that and and know that these athletes, you know, are on a path to so much success and and you know, for the United States and that's and that's amazing, you know. That's that's truly something that I can remember forever and th- and that's really what a legacy is. Are you trying to be involved in the 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 careers and and the lives of the athletes coming up um, because of the experiences that you have and the insight you can provide, or do you sort of let them uh, do their own thing? I've always said I'm an open book. You know, even when I was racing, you know, I I love talking with other girls and you know sharing advice and sharing lines. And you know, I, I mean, my best friend was Maria Reish, who was my biggest competitor my whole career. We were. Mm-hmm one and two in downhill for like five years straight. Um, but, you know, now it's it's nice because there's a lot of young girls that are coming onto the team that I, I didn't ski with. And and they're asking me advice and they're texting me and sending me their ski videos. And, you know, how can I, how can, you know, I how can you help me? And I'm like, I'm here, you know, I can help mm-hmm. you however you want. And even, you know, Sophia Goja, who's <laughs> beat me in the Olympics in Pyeongchang, who's Olympic gold medalist, and downhills, you know, she's texting me all the time, um, asking for advice. So I, I appreciate that. And that makes me, you know, feel good that, um, you know, that I can give back and continue to be a part of the sport because I, I love it. And, and I, I want to see all of my friends succeed. So, um, the Olympics are coming up. So you'll, you'll maybe be doing some work there. You'll obviously be around skiing, but what's life look like going forward? What do you, what do you hope to do? How do you see, let's say the next five, the next 10 years, what do they look like for you? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to <laughs> take it one day at a time. Honestly. I mean, I, I've planned about three months in advance and that's about as far as I go, but you know, right now I'm just mainly a businesswoman and I'm into venture capital. I've um, I'm advising a few funds. Um, I'm advising companies. I'm, you know, investor and advisor to Tempo and uh, Just Eggs. And, you know, I'm 
it's really fun to kind of have these new challenges and um, to be a part of companies like that. And, you know, I'm, I'm obviously I have a lot to learn, but um, that's what's exciting to me. So um, I think there's a lot of fun things to come, but I, I don't know exactly where every road will lead. I just know I'm going to work hard. And promoting the book and doing TV shows and and sponsorships continue. Um, I know you're 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 killer at ping pong. I saw you crush some people at a party at the ESPYS. Um, I'm curious about the injuries quickly because those are such a big deal when you're an athlete. And the worst part is when you're done being an athlete and they don't go away. And then they affect your ability to just either live your life as a former heptathlete. It's it's been years, and I still have to deal with so many things from when I was an athlete. Um, is there one that that like prevents you from going out with friends and, and doing a sport that you wish you could or that keeps you in pain just living your life? I mean, I'm definitely in pain pretty much every single day, as, as you probably know um, yourself. But, you know, I'm, it doesn't stop me from doing what I want to do because I've waited my whole career to be able to do these things. So right. I refuse to let my pain, you know, stop me from doing those things. So you know, playing tennis as much as I'm hobbling around after I play, I'm, I love it. Um, you know, wake surfing and, um, mountain biking and, you know, doing all of these things that I, and, you know, again, I've waited my whole life to do. Um, but you know, I'm definitely going to need a knee replacement. I'm trying to figure out, mm. you know, how soon I need it, you know, and that's, and I don't want to be in pain to the point of, you know, suffering, needlessly if I can get a replacement and it'll make it better. But, um, you know, again, I'm just, I'm kind of hoping that modern medicine will evolve quickly so that I can, you know, it'll fix everything that I, that's right. Hurting me. <laughs> the knee surgeries are getting better. I mean, those NFL players coming back from ACLs, it's wild. So right. yeah, maybe, you know, wait, wait another year or two, see what, see what happens. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, uh, before I let you go, you do have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. The Spanish Inquisition is part of ESPN Nation, brought to you by Dr. Pepper. College football is back, and so are the fans. Return to glory with Fansville by Dr. Pepper, the one fans deserve. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition speed round. Number one, your current career is canceled. And by that, I guess I mean you're book, your skiing, your venture capitalism and your sponsorships. What career do you do instead? Um, I'd probably be a vet. I love animals. Oh, yeah. Love yeah. that. Number two, what's the most scared you've ever been? Um, I don't really get scared, but like spiders or like any of those creepy critters. Yeah. Not my job. Not going 80 miles an hour down a hill, but maybe a tiny <laughs> that's spider that's one, one ten thousandth your size. <laughs> well, uh, number three, you could be the best in the world at one thing for one day. What is it? Tennis. Ooh, okay. We've got a new challenge here. I can see it in your eyes. You're ready. Uh, number four, what current celebrity from music, politics, TV, or sports would you most like to be your best friend? Um... Best friend, man, that's hard. Uh, I don't know. I feel like, well, Dwayne Johnson is my friend, so yeah. I can't really say that. No, but you just go with someone you admire from afar. Maybe like Shaq. I feel like he'd be good to have oh. like like a Red Bull vodka with, you know? Like yeah, we could you'd hang. Be fun. Yeah, It'd be fun and and like instant bodyguard too. Totally, <laughs> no one's messing really with you. Small, which I would love. If you're, 
if you're rolling with Shaq. Uh, number five, what's your biggest, most meaningless pet peeve? Uh, when people spell my name wrong. <laughs> I bet it, it happens not all with the time. A, it's with an E. <laughs> It's not Lindsay. It drives me nuts. Uh, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Um, I don't know. I don't really get embarrassed very easily. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think when my dad saw my first tattoo. Ooh, didn't know about it? No. And I'm like, Dad, I've had this for years. It's, you know, it's one of those things like, Parent child is yeah. unnecessary. <laughs> What's the what was the first one? Um, well, I had a couple. I have a couple finger tattoos. Mm-hmm. I have one. I have a couple here, and that that was the one he saw. That was the one he spotted. Yeah, yeah. Uh, number seven. What's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Um, my ability to confront confrontation. Oh, you I'm, avoid conflict. I am a conflict avoider. Mm. Are we working on this with our therapist? Therapy, okay, yeah. good, 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 good. If you ever need someone to get into a conflict for you, I run straight towards it. I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like drama, but if it's necessary, I'm going to, I'm going to go for it. Uh, face right, first, I'll give first. you a call next time. Perfect. <laughs> um, number eight, any musician or band alive or dead can play at your next party. Who is it? Ooh, Frank Sinatra. Oh, interesting. Okay. Uh, number nine, what would you consider your biggest failure? Mm, I don't think I failed at anything because I think failure is just a perspective. You know, I think it's more of a, more of a lesson. So I made mistakes, but I learned from them and I think those are necessary. So I don't consider them failures. Love that. Uh, number 10, what three individual words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Um, nice. Um, hardworking. Um, and gritty. I don't know. Nice. That's good. I like that. And then finally, who should I have on this podcast? Who's someone from any industry, anywhere that you think I would find interesting to talk to? From any industry? Mm-hmm. I think um, Harpreet right Ray from from Aura Aura Ring. He's like okay. so smart and interesting, and I think he's pretty he's pretty cool. You should definitely have him on. Awesome! Uh, this was really fun to talk to you. Uh, good luck with it. I know book tours are are both fun and exhausting, so yes. <laughs> hopefully uh, you don't get too sick of talking about yourself. <laughs> <laughs> As long as I'm talking to someone cool, I'm good. That's what she said. Oh, yeah. One more thing. This is a place for me to rant, rave, tell you about something to listen to, read, or watch, uh, just share a great story I like, whatever's on my mind. And this week on my mind is the Glennon Doyle podcast, We Can Do Hard Things. All the episodes are great, yeah, but if you've only got time for one, I just listened to the conversation she had with professor and author Kate Bowler. The episode title is What Do We Do With Our Short Precious Life? And after being unexpectedly diagnosed with stage four cancer at age 35, Kate Bowler penned a New York Times bestselling memoir, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved, and her latest book, No Cure for Being Human and Other Truths I Need to Hear. 
Uh, this is not your typical podcast with someone who, you know, claims to know the secret of life due to a terrible diagnosis and then speaks in all cliches. Um, she's hilarious. She's honest, biting. She speaks some very uncomfortable truths about the ways we delude and mislead ourselves, the ways we expect perfection, mishandle important life moments. Uh, the conversation is just really fantastic. And I'd say I'm, I'm more optimistic and more generally pleased with life and and the opportunity to live it than maybe all the participants in the pod. I don't find myself believing that life is difficult and tough and the moments that you can find happiness are are things to cling to. That's just not generally my my way of being, but their perspective is massively informative and interesting and the way they talk about the things that can be learned from a diagnosis like the one Kate got or just from looking at life differently than a lot of the sort of silly cliches that we've come to accept um, might serve us is really great. So make sure to check it out. Also, don't forget to listen to my podcast, The Happiness Project, from January 4th, if you haven't yet, and join the Do Crew. F*** it, Les Crew. The name's still undecided. Have I made that clear yet? Okay, great. Listen and then email me. Thanks for listening to the episode. Thanks for joining the crew if you do. And thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said.